Well, men, have you ever recorded a game and uh, wanted to see it later and just avoided your phone at all costs? Like you're not going to look at your notifications. You're not going to look at your text. You're not going to get on social media. You're going to avoid any news at all costs in order uh, to be able to watch this game and not know the ending, right? Because if you know the ending, then you're just almost like, oh, just forget it. You know, I don't even want to watch the game anymore. Or even if you do watch the game, it totally changes the whole experience if you know how the game ends. Now, ladies, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be for you. Maybe The Bachelor, maybe you don't want to know who got the rose or didn't get the rose, you know, whatever on the back. I don't know. But when you know the ending, here's what I know. When you know the ending, it changes everything about the present. It changes everything. It changes your entire experience. And listen, the same thing is true for the people of God. When you know, if you're a child of God, when you know that your heavenly father has already called game and it's already over, it changes how you live your day-to-day -day life. It changes everything about your experience in the present when you know the end. And so I'm going to call this, here's what I'm going to talk to you about today. Here's, here's what I'm going to call this, living backwards. When you know the end, it changes everything about your experience in the day today. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter eight. Uh, I would love for you to follow along in our app with us. Download our app, the City Church Lubbock, the verses, the points, the notes, uh, my weird charts and graphics I'm gonna show you here in a little bit. They're all there uh, for you in the app and you can email yourself those notes and take them with you and keep them with you after today. But let me give you just an intro to Daniel. Okay, let me give you an intro to the characters and what's going on here. Daniel and his friends, you know them probably as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, those are their Babylonian names. They are captives in the nation of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, by the sovereign will and plan of God, and the Babylonian empire have come and have destroyed uh, Jerusalem, have taken the people of Judah into captivity. If you were here, you know that's because of their sin. 500 years of sin and idolatry in the people of God and God said enough's enough. Uh, 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 just like Brandon preached about weeks ago, uh, their days were numbered just like all of our days were numbered. And uh, God said enough's enough, brought the nation of Babylon, King, King, King Nebuchadnezzar against them, wipes them out, takes a bunch of them into captivity. Daniel and his friends are members of the extended royal family. They are some of the ones who are taken into captivity in the nation of Babylon. So those are some of the characters. That's what's been happening a little bit. The nation of Persia would rise up. The Persian empire would rise up and take out the Babylonian empire. And so we've seen in Daniel one through six, uh, all of this unfold, the, the, the history here in Daniel seven, uh, Daniel starts to look back. He looks back and talks about a dream, a vision he had years ago. He's an old man now, and he's an old man when he's writing, but he's looking back to when he was a little bit younger and he's sharing about this dream, this vision he had in Daniel 7. And he has another one here in Daniel chapter 8. Now, what we've also said, another character at work here is the SOB, right? Okay, now that's not the, the guy that's in your class or that you work with, you know, or whatever. Uh, that, that's not who it is. The SOB is the spirit of Babylon. And the spirit of Babylon is the spirit of Antichrist. It's a demonic satanic spirit that in all times, when you read throughout the scripture, in all times, it's trying to steal the worship of the one true God. It's trying to ruin your life, destroy your life, put you to sleep spiritually, steal worship from God. And that is what the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Antichrist is doing in all times, in all ages, and will do to an even greater degree right before the return of Jesus. And so that's the spirit of Babylon. And that's what the, the Bible is about though. The Bible is about being faithful worshipers of the one true God, of Jesus, and this war that's taking place for the worship of the one true God, and his name is Jesus. So you and I, we've said we need to be faithful worshipers of Jesus. That's why we're studying the scripture, because all of the scripture is about being faithful worshipers of Jesus, both now and in the last days. So we need, we've said, the inspired word of God to help us be faithful worshipers of Jesus. So in light of that, I got an announcement I'm gonna make to you. Uh, we haven't talked about this yet. Uh, so, so I've got this announcement, it's huge, big news, okay? Uh, my vision, my plan over the next 20 years, okay? 20, maybe 22 years, is to average preaching through three books of the Bible a year so that in 20, 21, 22 years, if we were average three a year, we would have preached through the entire Bible. So if you wanna know, Clayton, what's your vision? 
Well, I've got a 20 year plus vision to preach through the scripture. If I'm still here, you're still here. Jesus hadn't returned. Uh, that, that's the vision, okay? It's to worship Jesus. It's to talk about Jesus. It's to make disciples of Jesus. That's, that's the vision, both now and in the long term, to hopefully preach through the entire Bible over the next 20, 22 years. And then I'll be, you know, I'll be about 60 or 65 then, you know, or who knows, you know, whatever. And, and uh, you'll have to wheel me up here in a wheelchair or something. I don't know, but, but that's the plan, all right? And we'll start over, you know, and with the book of Daniel in 22 years or something. I don't know, but, but, uh, but that's the plan. That's the vision. Now, let me make another announcement in light of that. In order to do that, here's what I've learned through this series. We need a little bit more time. Um, and so we're going to be changing our service time starting next week. We are going to have 8.30 service, a 10 o'clock service, and an 11.30 service. So this service, the 10 and 15, will back up to 10 our 8.30 is backing up, or our 9 is backing up to 8.30. 11.30 will say the same. We just need a little bit more time uh, to go verse by verse through the scripture, to still worship God, to not feel pressed for time, and then to get one crowd out and one crowd in. And so I apologize. Our services have been going long. And uh, instead of just going shorter, uh, we're just going to extend our service times. And so I hope you're cool with that and uh, so that we have plenty of time to do all this and not feel rushed and pressured. And I just want to be honest with you for a second. My hope... My prayer is, as a lot of you just nodded your heads and you're like, yeah, that's great. My hope, my prayer is that you're like, man, what, whatever. We're, there's no time here. There's no time clock here. We've got another service coming in after this. So, so there is kind of one, right? But, but my hope, my prayer is that you and I will love God's word so much. We'll love to worship God so much. We'll love being together so much um, that we're not thinking about getting out 10 minutes earlier in order to beat the crowd for lunch. Uh, we're not concerned as much about baseball and basketball and football games. We, we'd, we'd rather be here uh, than, than, than there. And I would too. And I love baseball and I love football, right? Uh, but, but we would care more about the word of God and the things of God, the worship of God than we do about worldly things. It's a running kind of joke in, uh, among pastors in our city. If you want to know a pastor joke, okay, there's a running joke here that if, um, tech football loses the day before attendance goes down in the churches the next day, you can laugh or cry. I, I do both. I, I don't know, but, uh, but that's the truth. If there's a late tech football game or if tech football loses, attendance is always down the next day. I don't know what that says about us. I don't think it says, I don't think it says a lot of good things about us. That's for sure. Okay. But my hope is we're going to love football or we're going to love Jesus more than we love football and basketball and baseball and uh, beating whoever to the restaurant down the street. All right. So that's my hope. That's my prayer. Before we dive in to Daniel chapter eight, let, let me give you uh, three quick points about apocalyptic literature. Let me rem remind you of these things that we said last week. Daniel seven through really the end of Daniel chapter 12 is called apocalyptic literature. So let me remind you of some of these points about apocalyptic literature. It usually speaks to the present, to the coming soon, and it points to what's coming later in the end. So it speaks to the present, to what's coming very soon. And then all of that points to or foreshadows what's going to happen at the very end of time when Jesus returns. Apocalyptic literature uses creative imagery to communicate. And so we saw last week in Daniel seven, these wild, crazy beasts. In Daniel chapter eight, you're gonna see that again. You're gonna see some animals, some beasts, some pictures. This is creative imagery. And these images speak truly, accurately, and intensely, but not precisely. And so when we approach apocalyptic literature, we've got some things in what's called the, the open hand and some things in a closed hand. And the open hand, these are things that we can debate and people who love Jesus and love God's word will debate these things and come to different conclusions on them. And they, they, they still fall in the camp of loving Jesus and loving God's word. Then you've got things in the closed hand. Things that are in the closed hand are like the Bible's God's word, Jesus is God's son, Jesus died on the cross for our sin, Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus is coming back again. These are closed-handed issues. And if you love Jesus and you love God's word, there's just not much room for debate on those issues. So you've got open hand and closed hand. And a lot of what we're talking about in apocalyptic literature is in the open hand. Jesus said it like this, it's not for you to know the times and the dates and the places, okay? You're not gonna know precisely all the times and the dates, Jesus said, that's for, that's for God alone. So th those are open-handed issues. But in the closed hand, Jesus quotes from Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and says, he's coming once again on the clouds. The son of man is going to return on the clouds and that's in the closed hand. So these images are used, even though they don't 
communicate precisely. They are used by God to communicate truth from God because they fire us up and they let us kind of peek behind the curtain to see the real spiritual battle that's taking place. And these images will put a fire in your soul and they will alert you and wake you up to a real battle that's taking place for your soul and for the soul of your children and for the soul of your grandchildren and for their worship of the one true God. So that's why creative imagery is used. It wakes us up. And then finally, last, here's what you need to know about apocalyptic literature. It is written so that we will not stress about the future. If the future is open, then you're gonna stress. But if God is in control, if he rules the future, if the whole world is in his hands, like we used to sing as children, then that means you can mourn and struggle with hope and faith. You can live backwards. So let's dive in. Daniel chapter eight, starting in verse one, follow along with me in your copy of the scripture on your phone. Uh, if you got your big Bible like me or uh, in our app, the City Church Lubbock, it's all there. All right, verse one. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision. So once again, like in chapter seven, he's looking back. He's an old man now. He's looking back to when he was, uh, when he was under the reign or when Babylon was in, in, in charge, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar was king and now Belshazzar is king after Nebuchadnezzar. And he's saying, I saw this other vision. Daniel seven was the first vision he's referring to. Now in Daniel eight, he's seeing another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. So Susa would become, it wasn't yet, because Babylon's in power, but Susa would become the capital city and fortress of the nation of Persia. So he's looking into the future and he's seeing a few hundred miles away himself in this fortress, the headquarters for the Persian empire would become that years later, he's seeing himself there. This would be like our white house. He's seeing himself hundreds or not hundreds of years, but years later, hundreds of miles away in Susa in what would be the Persian empire's white house, so to say. All right, let's keep going. Verse three, as I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of his way to the west, to the north, to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and he became very great. Now, what we've been doing is stopping and interpreting this, but here's what's cool about Daniel 8 is God through an angel interprets all of this for us. So we're going to read this vision, more about this vision. We'll stop for a little bit. Then we're gonna read the interpretation that God gives us. So we, we don't have to wonder anything about what we're reading today. We don't have to debate it because God tells us what he's seeing here later through this angel. Verse five, while I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I'd seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him breaking both his horns. Now the ram was helpless and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horse, the horn rather succeeded in everything it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration or desolation stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and the heavenly armies be trampled on? 
And the other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the temple will be made right again. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me and I heard a human voice calling out from the Uli River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. So Daniel is confused. He doesn't understand what's going on here. And maybe you're feeling the same way. I have no idea what he's talking about here. What is all of this supposed to mean? Well, Daniel sees, look in verse 15, I saw one like a man, like a son of man. Once again, Daniel is seeing a vision of a pre-incarnate Jesus. He doesn't know what he's reading or he, he, he's seeing here. He doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on here. And he sees Jesus and Jesus, watch this, calls out, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So Daniel doesn't understand the scripture. Maybe you've been there before. You've been reading the Bible. You're reading it. You're, I don't understand what any of this means. I, 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 I'm not sure what this means. Uh, Daniel didn't either. And Daniel receives a helper to help him interpret and understand the vision. Now, God does the exact same thing for you and me. When Jesus left this earth, he told his disciples, hey guys, it's better if I go, because if I go, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna be your comforter, he's gonna be your helper, and he's gonna lead you and guide you into all truth. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit leads you, our helper, leads us into all truth and reminds us of truth from God's word. And that's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. He would lead us and guide us and comfort us and convict us of sin and righteousness. So we've been given a helper to help us understand the scripture. Paul said it like this, the unspiritual man cannot understand the spiritual things of God, but the spiritual man with a spiritual mind through the power of the Holy Spirit can understand spiritual things from God. So we don't understand the scripture and cannot fully understand it apart from the Holy Spirit's work and help. And so that's why we pray, God, help us to understand your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help bring your word to light in my mind, illumine it so that I might know what it's saying and interpret it. And then God, give me the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to live out your word and to apply it to my life. And so God has given you and I, he always does this. He gives a helper to help us understand the scripture and apply it to our lives. All right, let's keep going. Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, verse 17. Gabriel approached the, the place where I was standing. I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand the, that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. While he was speaking, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. And then he said this, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The angel says, what we're showing you, what God is showing you, what you are seeing relates to the end of time, to the time of wrath, to the very end of time. Now, Scholars have debated, is this referring to the time of wrath that's to come hundreds of years later that we're going to talk about here in just a second? To, to, to the end of this kind of season of the, the people of God, is that, is that what it's referring to? Or is it really referring to the very end when Jesus will return? Well, I think by the context here and everything that we're reading, it, it lends itself more towards actually the original languages, lend itself more towards talking about the immediate future for the nation of Israel and the time of wrath that's to come that we're gonna talk about here in just a second that the nation of Israel has yet to experience. But as apocalyptic literature always does, remember what it does, it speaks to the present, to the coming soon, and the present and the coming soon prophecy always is a picture it's a foreshadowing of what's to come at the very end when Jesus returns. So let's keep going. Verse 20. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Medea and Persia. So this is the Medo-Persian empire. This ram with one horn longer than the other represents the Medo-Persian empire. Empire, And it's a fitting symbol for this empire because it was the rulers of Persia who would carry 
a gold head of a ram into battle with them. And so it was a fitting symbol, it was a fitting animal that would have made more sense to Daniel and to the readers of his day than it does to us. Remember last week we said, if the donkey goes against the uh, elephant to rule the eagle, we would say, oh, that, that's an election year, right? I'm not sure anybody else on the face of the planet would know what we're talking about, right? But in our day, in our time here in America, that makes a little bit more sense. Well, this would make a little bit more sense to Daniel and his readers because the Persian rulers would carry a gold ram, the head of a gold ram into battle with them. Now, remember this ram has one horn that's longer than the other. And so if you remember back in Daniel seven, the bear was leaning to one side, right? And I said, that represents the Medo-Persian empire. Part of the reason why I believe that is because when you keep reading scripture, usually interpret scripture in Daniel chapter eight, the ram with the one longer, longer horn than the other is the Medo-Persian empire. And it represents the Medo-Persian empire because the Persians were the ones that were the bigger, stronger, and more dominant nation and would end up taking completely over. And that's why you and I usually hear of the Persian empire, not the Medo-Persian empire. So this ram with one horn longer than the other represents the Medo-Persian empire. It's the Daniel seven bear that's, that's leaning to one side, that's bigger on one side than the other. It's the Daniel two arms and chest of silver on the statue. And again, I'll show you all that here in just a little bit, but let's keep reading. Verse 21, the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none will be as great as the first. So the goat isn't Michael Jordan. It's not Tom Brady. It's Patrick Mahomes. Um, not yet, but I'm just speaking that and claiming that in Jesus name. All right. So no, no, the goat is the Greek empire and this king is Alexander the great. Now you might be wondering why a goat? Great question. My wife loves goats. She thinks they, 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 she'd rather have a goat than probably her kids. I, I'm just kidding, but, but she loves goats. She did like goat yoga or something sometime and they're pooping all over the place. I'm like, why would you do that? Why, why would you do goat yoga? I don't understand this, but she loves goats. Why a goat? Well, the first colonists that founded Greece saw a demonic oracle. And this oracle said, find a goat, and follow the goat. And when the goat lays down, that's the place to start this new city or this new nation that would form. And so they found a goat, they followed a goat, the goat laid down and that's where they founded this city. And they called the city Aegea, which means goat city. This city would become the nation of Greece, which would become the empire of Greece. And guess what sea surrounds the nation of Greece? The Aegean Sea, the Goat Sea. They named the city, they named the sea after the goat to honor the goat. Now, let me just say a word here. Just because you get revelation and it seems supernatural, doesn't mean it's from God. It could be demonic. And in this case, this revelation is demonic. It's from a demonic oracle. We're told that in the end, the Antichrist will actually perform miraculous signs and wonders to prove the things he's saying are true and to prove because he will claim to be God, he will do miraculous signs and wonders. In fact, it will even look like he dies and comes back from the grave and he will claim to be God. And so just because you see miraculous signs and wonders, just because you get revelation doesn't mean it's from God. It could be demonic. And so the scripture tells us we are to test every spirit and everything you hear and everything you hear me saying, you should be testing as you read and study God's word. We test everything we hear. We test every book that we read. We test every dream, every vision, every revelation that we feel like we get into with at least two things. One, does it confirm what's said in the word of God? Is it in line with God's word? Does it contradict God's word at all? If it did, then you are wrong. And that's a demonic revelation. It's a demonic spirit. So that's the first one. Does it fall in line with the word of God? Secondly, does it promote the worship of the one true God, Jesus? 
Does this revelation, does this dream, does this word, whatever it is that you, you might get or you might receive, does it fall in line with Jesus being Lord? Does it promote the worship of Jesus? Does it help me love and follow Jesus and submit to the Lordship of Jesus? Paul writes in Romans chapter eight that it's the Holy Spirit of God that enables us to say Jesus is Lord. And so if a spirit or a revelation or a word that we get or a picture that we see, whatever it is, if it doesn't, if it doesn't promote the idea that Jesus is Lord and doesn't fall in line with God's word, then it's demonic. Well, Alexander the Great's father would become the king of Macedon. And his father's dream was to conquer the Persian Empire. Well, Alexander the Great's parents were killed long before that ever happened. And Alexander the Great assumes the throne as a young man in his early 20s. He is this horn on this goat. And in his early 20s, he determines in his heart to fulfill his father's ambition. It's the lifelong mission of Alexander the Great to defeat the Persian Empire and to conquer the world. Well, in 10 years, he does just that. In 10 years, this dude in the Greek empire conquers almost the entire known world. At age 33, Alexander the Great has conquered almost the entire known world and he sits down and weeps because he's got no one left to conquer. That's fast, guys. That's super fast. 10 years, you conquer the world. By age 33, you're already the ruler of the entire known world. That is fast. And the vision that Daniel is seeing of this goat, this goat is moving so fast, it says that it doesn't touch the ground. This is the Daniel 2 leopard that's already fast, we said last week, that has wings, which makes it even faster. And that's why I believe that the leopard with the four heads in Daniel chapter seven is this goat that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter eight. This is the Greek empire. Well, in the first century AD, in 94 AD, a guy by the name of Josephus, the most famous, uh, the most, the, the greatest historian, one of ever, writes in 94 AD, the history of the Jews. And in it, here's what he said about Alexander the Great. This is so stunning. The first time I heard it, it actually moved me to tears. And every time I've read it since, it just gives me chills. I was almost every week, I take our staff through the message that uh, we're going to preach on the weekends and, um, so on Thursday, I was taking them through it again. And even as I was reading and telling them about what we we're going to talk about, I was just, I was just getting chills reading this. It, it's, this is absolutely incredible. Josephus writes in 94 AD about a dream, a vision that Alexander the Great had. In it, Alexander the Great said he saw a man he did not know that appeared to him wearing purple, a color of royalty. And this man said, it's time for you to Get an army together and march against Persia. It's time to fulfill your destiny, your lifelong dream. Well, Alexander the Great assumed it was a divine revelation, so he marches and he starts conquering. He starts conquering parts of Israel. And the high priest in Israel, fearing that history was repeating itself, just like had happened under the nation of Babylon, and now under the nation of Persia, the high priest, fearing that history is repeating itself, God spoke to the high priest in a dream and said this, that he should take courage, that he should adorn Jerusalem or clothe, get, get, get the people of Jerusalem clothed, open the gates and welcome Alexander the Great. One of the greatest warriors, warlords the world's ever known, God says, welcome him. Open the gates and welcome him. The people, God said, should wear white garments. The priest, the high priest, should meet Alexander the Great in the robes of their priesthood without fear because God would protect them. Well, Alexander the Great and the Greeks are marching and they're coming upon Jerusalem. And Alexander the Great sees the high priest in what color would you think? Purple. And all the people around him in white 
And Alexander the Great stops and is absolutely stunned. Alexander the Great told the high priest, you were the man that I saw in my dream. And the high priest welcomed Alexander the Great into Jerusalem and took him into the temple. The high priest opened to Daniel chapter 8. And told Alexander the Great, today you are fulfilling prophecy from hundreds of years ago. The God of heaven told us you were coming a few hundred years ago. You are the mighty horn and you have come to defeat the ram. You don't know God, the high priest said, but our God knows you. We've been waiting for you. Alexander the Great joined the high priest in offering a sacrifice to his God. Now we're not sure that he converted or anything like that, but he offered a sacrifice to honor the God of the high priest and the God of this dream that he had. Alexander the Great asked the high priest for anything that he could do for him and for the people of Jerusalem. And the high priest said, well, when you conquer, we ask for freedom to worship God according to the scriptures. And Alexander the Great granted this. Alexander the Great left Jerusalem and he went with full confidence in his destiny because if you know your future and you live backwards, you live a lot more confidently. You struggle, you persevere with hope and with faith. Alexander the Great marched against the empire of Persia with 35,000 soldiers. The nation, the empire of Persia had 100,000 soldiers. Alexander the Great was outnumbered three to one. And yet they wiped out the nation of Persia. Liberal critics of the Bible will often realize that this prophecy here in Daniel chapter eight, and when we get to Daniel chapter 11, you'll, you'll see even more specifics, is so specific, they will say it had to be written after all of this occurred. But that's impossible because Daniel lived and wrote hundreds of years before this happened, and the high priest and Alexander the Great read this himself before he ever conquered Persia. This is the word of God. No one could predict the future with this kind of accuracy except God alone. And so when we say this is the, the word of God, when Paul says every word of scripture is God breathed, you can know for certain this is the word of God. This is God's revelation of himself and of the future that he has given us. He used men to write, but make no mistake, as the scripture says, this is God breathed. This is the word of God. Our God rules the future. And he truly does have the whole world in his hands. Verse 23, at the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people of God. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even be, he will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken though not by human power. So from the four horns that came after Alexander the Great. Remember if you were here last week, Alexander the Great, and we saw it here at the beginning of Daniel 8, Alexander the Great's kingdom is divided into four. He had no heirs, his, his sons were killed at a young age. He has no heirs and when he dies, the nation, the empire is divided into four and there's four generals that take, uh, each take a fourth of it. Well, from them, hundreds of years later, from those four horns, hundreds of years later, Daniel sees this other little horn that rises to power out of one of those horns, out of one of those four. Hundreds of years later, a little horn rises to power. This little horn, it says, is demonic power. He has power, but it's not his own, and it's not the power of God. This is demonic power. This little horn that rises to power will be a master of intrigue and deception, the scripture says. He will be broken, by, but not by a human hand. In other words, God will break him suddenly and surprisingly. Now, this is Daniel seeing several hundred years into the future, the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. I'll say it again. This is Daniel seeing the rise of of Antiochus Epiphanes several hundred years later. 
Antiochus Epiphanes means the God-man. So guess who gave him that name? He did. That's what he called himself. He called himself the God-man. The people of God called him the madman because only, the only people who think they're God or would put themselves in the place of God are crazy, mad men. But he called himself the God-man. Now, we learn a lot more about Antiochus Epiphanes in the Maccabees. The Maccabees, first and second Maccabees are not in your Bible. They are in the Catholic Bible. It's called the Apocrypha. We believe there's some good history there, but it's not Bible. It's not from God. That's not the revelation of God. Good history, but not Bible. Well, in first and second Maccabees, we learn about Antiochus Epiphanes, this little horn that rises to power. And in a few days, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughtered 80,000 Jews. He was the Hitler of his time. He marched on the temple. He tramples the word of God. He burns the word of God. He thinks he knows better than God. He claims to be God. And he set up in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the demonic Greek God, Zeus. He sets up an idol in the Holy of Holies. He stops the sacrificial system of a spotless lamb that would die in the place of the die for the sin of the people of God in their place for their sin. And in its place, he sacrifices a pig to the Greek God Zeus and the Holy of Holies in the temple. The New Testament refers to this as the abomination that causes desolation. Desolation because the worshipers of God fleed the temple. The abomination that causes desolation. Well, then out of nowhere, this guy rises to power, he's persecuting the Jews, he's claiming to be God. Then out of nowhere, Antiochus Epiphanes got a bowel infection. His body went toxic, he lost his mind, and he died. And Daniel says that was all by the hand of God. God just poked him in his bowels. It's kind of funny, if you ask me. His body went toxic, he lost his mind, and he died. Suddenly, out of nowhere. Later, after the Jewish people rededicated and cleansed the temple in return, they started a festival to celebrate. It's called Hanukkah, the festival of lights because the lights were back on in the temple of God. Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadowing. It's a picture, the scripture says, of the Antichrist that is to come before the return of the one true God Jesus. Remember, apocalyptic literature always speaks to the present, to coming soon, but then it points to what's going to happen in the end. And so this vision that Daniel has of Antiochus Epiphanes is coming soon. It's in a few hundred years, but it's a picture of, it's a pointing to what's going to happen again. John said it like this in 1 John 2 verse 18. This is the last hour. The Antichrist is going to come, but many Antichrists have already come. And surely Antiochus Epiphanes was one of those. Second Thessalonians chapter two talks about a man of lawlessness that will come and set himself up to be God and will take a seat in the temple of God and exalt himself. Paul is hearkening back to, he's referring back to Antiochus Epiphanes and the way he took his seat in the temple of God and claimed to be God himself and says the Antichrist will do the exact same Thing. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter four, when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's Daniel eight. That's what we're reading right now. Standing in the holy place that's in the temple. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, Jesus is talking about a time that's to come when we will see another abomination that causes desolation in the temple, Jesus says, when you see that day that Daniel talked about, know the end is coming. This is Matthew 24. Then Jesus said this, in that day and in those days, the son of man will come again on the clouds with power and glory. That's Daniel 7. So Jesus twice in Matthew 24 says, when you see what the prophet Daniel spoke about in Daniel chapter eight, the abomination that causes desolation, then you will know that what the Daniel spoke about, the prophet that spoke about in Daniel chapter seven, the son of man coming on the clouds, you'll know that day is coming soon. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD and has remained destroyed ever since. So if what is going to happen, if, if, if Jesus is right and this is going to happen and I believe he is, that means the temple will be rebuilt and antichrist will rise to power. 
There will be another abomination that causes desolation in the temple. And then Jesus will return on the clouds. Verse 26, this vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time. So, so keep this vision a secret. Scholars have debated, is this seven years? Uh, that's 20, that would be 2300. It's talking about evenings and mornings there, referring to Jewish sacrifices. So would that actually be uh, half of 2300? I'm gonna try to do math real quick in my head. So what is that, 1,150? So about three and a half years. So, so is it seven years? Is it three and a half years? Some scholars think this number, this figure is symbolic. We don't really know. People that love Jesus and love God's word have said and have made strong cases for all three options. Here's what we do know. There's a time of intense suffering that is to come for the people of God. Verse 27, then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Daniel sees God being dishonored and he is sick about it. He's appalled at this vision. We've said all throughout this series, what God creates, Satan counterfeits. He's appalled at the counterfeit of God that he is seeing in his vision and he is overwhelmed at the trouble that he sees coming for the people of God. He's overwhelmed by this satanic counterfeit, but at the same time, Daniel is comforted by this vision because he knows that ultimately, when you live backwards, he knows that ultimately the son of man is going to come again on the clouds one day. So let me summarize some of this for you and give you three takeaways, all right? So I know you're reading this and probably like Daniel, you might be confused, you might not be totally understanding, uh, you might be overwhelmed at the vision that Daniel has seen. So let me summarize this with you with my nifty chart here, okay? It's in your app as well. Um, if you, you can save that, you can screenshot it, you can email it to yourself. This is just a summary of where we've been. This is the Daniel 2 statue that Daniel saw. These are the Daniel 7 beasts that we saw and we read about last week, the Babylonian empire, the Medo-Persian empire, the bear that's leaning, the Greek empire, the, the, the leopard with the, the four heads and the four wings, the, the, this iron beast that's the Roman empire and the, the 10 horns that are coming up out of the, the iron beast in Daniel 7 that represent a renewed Roman-like empire that is still to come, that the antichrist will rule one day. You've got the ram here with one horn longer than the other, representing again the Medo-Persian empire. You've got the Greek empire here. This is the goat that's running so fast it doesn't touch the ground because it conquers so fast with the horn that's coming out of it. That's Alexander the Great. You've got the four horns that represent the four, uh, the, the, the four divisions of the kingdom that were given to Alexander's generals. And out of one of these horns, hundreds of years later, comes a little horn that's Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is the foreshadowing of the Antichrist. He's a picture of what's to come. And then up here, we've got the Daniel 2 rock that comes out of nowhere. Remember that dashes the Daniel 2 statue to pieces. This rock though, Daniel 7 is coming on the clouds, Daniel saw. This is the son of man returning on the clouds to rule and to reign forever. So what do you do with all of this? <laughs> you know, what, 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 what do we do? How do we respond? Well. Here's a few takeaways. Number one, first takeaway is this. The scripture is about the son. All of the scripture is about the son. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. The Bible is for you. It's for us, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus and the worship of the one true God. Jesus said all of the scriptures about him. Jesus said, all of the law, the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus said this, it's all about me and it all points to me. And in the gospels, we see the life of Jesus. And then in the rest of the New Testament, we see the apostles writing about the gospel of Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, we see the return of Jesus once again. It's all about Jesus. God's not depending on nations and kingdoms to rise up so that his will might be done and so that his kingdom might come on earth. We saw last week in Daniel 7, everything that comes up out of the earth from you and from the nations of this earth is wicked and evil and insufficient. God is not waiting on America to get the right Senate and house and president in place so that his kingdom can be done and so that his will can be done. No, 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 we're not looking to the nations or to the people of this earth for our hope and salvations. We're looking to a kingdom 
that is to come and a son who will return, who will rule that kingdom forever and ever. That's where our eyes are. That's what we're looking forward to. That's where our hope is. And God, through the scripture and through all of history, is working and moving to reveal his son, Jesus, even through evil situations and evil kings and kingdoms. God is using all of it to reveal his son. He used the Persian empire, the Greek empire, the Roman empire for the exact same purpose, to reveal his son. You might wonder, what, what, what is all this concern about Babylon and Persia and Greek empire? Why are we learning about these things in the Bible? Like, like what's the deal here? Why does God care so much about these empires? Well, number one, these empires ruled and governed the people of God, the nation of Israel. So, so, so that's one. But, but two, ultimately, here's the reason why God cares. Here's the ultimate reason why we're studying and learning about the Babylonian empire, the Persian empire, the Greek empire, the, the Roman. Here, here's the ultimate reason. Alexander the Great destroyed the nation of Persia. The Greek empire came to power. Daniel 2, we learn that it's God who raises up kings and kingdoms and it's God who takes down kings and kingdoms. So this happened by the will of God. Under the Greek empire, watch this. The Greek language became commonplace in most of the known world. The Greek empire formed a formal education system. The Greek empire saw literacy spread to where people could read more so than they ever had in the history of the world. The Roman Empire comes to power and develops a road system, a highway system that would take you with great ease and speed to the corners of the known earth like you never could before in the history of the world. Now watch this. Under the Roman Empire, God came in the flesh the first time through his son, Jesus. He died at the hands of the Romans. He rose again. And then his disciples went everywhere preaching the good news of the gospel on the Roman highways, preaching in the Greek language and writing the New Testament in the Greek language so that more people than ever before in the history of the world could hear the good news about the Son of God. That's why God cares about Babylon and Persia and Greece and Roman Empire and America or any other country. He's working in all things to reveal his son to you so that you might be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why it's all about Jesus. The scripture is about the son and God has the whole world in his hands and he rules and controls the future. Here's the second takeaway. The scripture is the word of God. You need to know the scripture is the word of God. We've got precise prophecy about the future and no one could do that except God alone. And then God's son, Jesus rose from the grave. He quoted all of the the prophets of the Psalms and the law, giving authority to the compilation of the old Testament. And then he gave authority to his disciples and the power of the Holy spirit to write the words of scripture. And Jesus said this, my words will never pass away. This is the word of God. And it's people like Antiochus Epiphanes, the Antichrist. It's a demonic, satanic spirit that wants to overthrow the word of God and step on it and live over it, stand over it rather than submit to it. The people of God submit themselves under the word of God. They do not stand over it. We do not change it. We change our behavior. We don't edit it. We edit our behavior. We don't lord over it. It lords over us and it determines everything that we think, do, and believe. We submit ourselves under the word of God. And so here we preach the Bible and we preach about Jesus. We don't talk about opinions because opinions are worthless. Paul wrote in Romans one, your opinion, the ideas that we come up with about God, Paul said are foolishness. We come up with foolish ideas about who God is. So we submit ourselves under the word of God. Third takeaway is this, and we're done. The saints will suffer with hope. 
The saints of God will suffer with hope. I believe we will go through the tribulation. That is the people of God, the church. So I'm what's called a historic premillennialist. I am post-trib, which means I believe Jesus will return after the tribulation and he will set up his kingdom here on earth. But even if you're a pre-trib person, which means you believe Jesus will return before the tribulation, that, that, that's fine. I, I, don't, I don't see that. I hope you're right. I don't see it. I hope you're right. Because I believe the people of God will go through this intense time of suffering, this time of wrath that Daniel's talking about and that we see in Revelation 13. I believe we will go through it. But regardless of where you stand on that, here, here's what we can agree. It's getting tougher and tougher to be a Christian in our country. And right now, all over the world, I've heard it said that right now, all over the world, more people are being martyred for their faith in Jesus today than there ever has been in the history of the world. So regardless, it is going to get tougher and tougher to be a Christian in this world. And I believe Jesus will return in my lifetime, which means it's going to get real tough. So if that's true, and I believe it is, you and I need to suffer and mourn and persevere with hope and faith, knowing that God reveals the future to lift the fear. He reveals the future to show that he rules the present and the future. That we know the son of man is coming on the clouds. Our God is already called game. And so we can live backwards. We can persevere and struggle and mourn with hope and worship with hope, knowing that he's got the whole world in his hands. In Revelation chapter six and chapter seven, the persecution is getting so great and the angels are crying out to God. How long is this going to last? We saw it here in Daniel chapter eight. How long is this going to last? Who can stand this? Who could stand up under this kind of persecution? And Jesus cries out and he says, my kids, that's who. My kids are going to stand. And in Revelation chapter seven, they start singing, worthy is the lamb. That's what we do. We worship and we stand and we preach and we pray with hope and faith. That's what we do. And Jesus says, we will, we will stand, we will sing, we will preach, we will pray because salvation belongs to our God and to the lamb and to his kingdom. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown us the future, that the son of man is going to return on the clouds. And so we suffer and mourn and persevere. And now we worship with hope, the hope that the son of man is going to return on the clouds one day. Help us to believe it by faith until we see it by sight. In Jesus' name. Amen.